Hello and welcome to this episode of Before Economics, the history of political economy. Adam Smith is famous today as the founder of economics and the champion of free markets. Yet we saw in the previous episode that this image of Smith relies on suppressing his account of human nature, which he developed in his first published book, The Theory of Moral Sentiments. Smith was certainly a defender of commercial society, but in the context of 18th century debates regarding the corruption of human nature by commerce, it will not do to read Smith in relation to 20th century debates regarding the relative merits of state intervention and free markets. The task for this episode is to therefore come to terms with Smith's wealth of nations in full awareness of his account of human nature. The best first step is to get a sense of the work as a whole. Keith Tribe describes the book. Yeah, well, The Wealth of Nations is organised as five books. It's in three parts, really. Books one and two are about division of labour, money, value, uh, economic activity. Book two is more about capital and accumulation. And then books three and four, book three is about looking back at the development of Europe from uh, the Roman times onwards and the kind of relationship between the town and country and, and the development of towns and, and general development. And then book four, linked to that, is about ideas of development, but in terms of arguments or policies introduced in the 18th century relating to how nations should become wealthy, where he argues against various kinds of protectionist measures and so forth. And then in book five, he looks at public finances and the role of government. Let us start at the beginning with book one. Smith conceives of a nation's wealth not as its GDP, as we do today, but in terms of what he calls its annual labour those goods and services that are either produced by labour or which are purchased from other nations using the produce of labour. Unlike those writers in the reason of state tradition, who emphasised the supply of fighting men, war materials and bullion, Smith begins with labour. The size of this annual labour is said to be determined by two factors. The first is the skill of labour, and here Smith has primarily in mind the extent to which the division of labour has been carried on, the extent to which the production of a good has been broken down into its constituent parts and become the object of specialised skill. Smith's famous example is the pin factory. There are some 18 operations required to make a pin, and if one person specialises in each of them, then production levels would be transformed by the resulting dexterity and efficiency. The second factor determining the size of a nation's annual labour is the ratio between productive and unproductive labour. To translate this argument into today's terms, we can think of income that is used for consumption and income that is invested in capital. In every society, at least a part of the annual labour will be unproductive because this category includes not only luxury goods, such as wine and jewels, but also offices of the state, such as bureaucrats and soldiers. Nevertheless, the key point is that rich nations always exhibit high ratios of productive to unproductive labour, while the resources of poor nations are always dissipated in unproductive expense. We now come to one of Smith's most unusual arguments. Productive labour was put into motion by capital, and there were four general sectors, raw materials, manufacturing, the wholesale trade, and the retail trade. Smith insisted that capital invested in agriculture was the most beneficial for society because in this industry, nature laboured for free. In other words, Smith re-described nature as a type of labour, such that when capital was directed to agriculture, not only were the farmer and the labourers counted as productive labour, but nature itself laboured for the nation too. As Smith wrote, nature labours along with man, and her labour costs no expense. 
It is hard to make sense of this argumentation using the concepts of economics today, since considerations of productivity, profitability, and employment seem to be fused together. Nevertheless, the implication is clear enough. There is an ideal development path for any society, which is to first exhaust the opportunities for directing capital to agriculture and then move through the other uses, manufacturing, wholesaling, and retailing. This brings us to Book 3, which tells the story of how Europe failed to follow this ideal order. The reason is familiar to students of Western history. The fall of the Roman Empire saw the German tribes overrun much of Western Europe and usher in a period of chaos and violence. When order did begin to emerge once more, it did so as that form of organisation that we have come to call feudalism, in which enormous swathes of land were held by a few individuals who came to style themselves as lords. The point of this history lesson for Smith's argument is that these landed lords did not treat their farms as productive businesses, but often allowed them to languish. By contrast, the merchants in the towns were thrifty and shrewd in commerce, and so it happened that for much of Western Europe, capital accumulated in the towns and not in the countryside. Europe's path to opulence was the exact opposite of what nature would normally dictate. Smith developed this theme in Book 4. There we learn of the mercantile system, an outgrowth of those thrifty merchants in the towns who managed to extract numberless concessions and privileges from the government. It is here that we find Smith's memorable attacks on interfering with the allocation of capital, denying the ability of the statesman to supervene commercial activity more effectively than individuals could. It is rarely noted, however, that the invisible hand is invoked by Smith in this book not because a free foreign trade would have produced better results, but because a policy of free trade would have seen capital withdrawn from foreign trade and directed to agriculture, thus enticing nature to labour for free. The idea of Mother Nature toiling for free is hardly persuasive in the 21st century. That we still hear talk of the invisible hand as if it were a policy argument is testimony to the power of mythical histories. The final book of Smith's Wealth of Nations concerns the nature of public finance and the role of the statesmen in dispensing the higher duties of their office. While it might be sufficient to leave the allocation of capital to individual discretion in the interests of maximising national wealth, it was still the case that the nation had higher interests than wealth, above all, security and justice. Security required a standing army of disciplined soldiers, a new profession created by the division of labour. Smith took it for granted that a standing army of professional soldiers was superior to any virtuous militia, thus putting to rest centuries of debate going back to at least Machiavelli. Justice was built on the reactions of the impartial spectator. We strongly and uniformly perceive that stealing another person's property is wrong, and these moral sentiments are expressed in property law. Indeed, the idea of an impartial spectator who can correctly assess what counts as good conduct given the circumstances of a situation seems to correspond to common law legal systems in which a judge administers the law in view of the facts of the case. Both our appreciation for the law and its operation is grounded in our deepest moral natures. It was in view of this point that Smith registered some reservations regarding the march of progress. He admitted that the worker in the pin factory, who mindlessly performed the same operation thousands of times a day, might lack the necessary refinement of judgment needed to call forth the best moral qualities of his fellow citizens. For this reason, the statesman would need to ensure the physical and mental education of citizens to some minimum level to avoid the moral sentiments of the entire society unravelling. In summary, Smith is hard to place on the maps of knowledge that we use today. Keith Tribe again. If we had to put a label on Adam Smith, it wouldn't be that of an economist. It wouldn't be that even of a political economist, a term which came into use shortly after his death, really. 
But we would call him a moral philosopher, a moral philosopher in the 18th century sense, not the modern sense, the 18th century sense of a philosopher concerned with sociability, with moral order and right conduct. Smith's Wealth of Nations belongs to a genre of writing that no longer exists, combining a vanished style of moral philosophy with reflection on the wealth of nations, policy, history and the philosophy of law. To read Smith is to enter a foreign land. This episode of Before Economics was brought to you by the European Society for the History of Economic Thought. Written and spoken by me, Dr Ryan Walter, at the University of Queensland. Special thanks to Keith Tribe. The audio engineer was Ni Adepoyebi.